This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to PM. I'm David Lipson coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Tonight, the Governor of the Reserve Bank, which raises interest rates, speaks of his heavy heart, but insists inflation is still way too high and must come down. Also, $5 billion in profit reported by the Commonwealth Bank. It enjoys a windfall from increasing interest rates. But is it fair? I think it's appalling and it's just a sign of the appalling greed that we're seeing these days. They don't have to earn $5 billion. They could earn $5 million, maybe. And hope for some children with cancer as a targeted treatment program is expanded across the country. This is marvellous. It's terrific to think that all children could have access to this sort of program. It's really proven that in those high-risk children that there's a significant impact. Thanks for your company. The Governor of the Reserve Bank today insisted he's just doing his job. Staring down criticism, he's hiked interest rates too much, too quickly, inflicting hardship on Australian households in his dogged pursuit of lower inflation. In an hour and a half of questioning before a Senate committee in Canberra, Philip Lowe was asked to explain the RBA's decisions to increase rates from pandemic-era record lows to 3.35%, the highest they've been in more than a decade. And he said inflation is still way too high and needs to come down. From Canberra, political reporter Matthew Doran. Mr Lowe, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, um, Senator, for the invitation to join you. Pleasantries before political probing. Philip Lowe keen to express from the outset he's aware he's not the nation's favourite banker. It's the job of the central bank to do sometimes what's unpopular in the national interest. The RBA has hiked interest rates after its last nine consecutive meetings. Annual repayments on an average $600,000 mortgage now $13,500 more than last May. The feedback to Philip Lowe, direct. Um, I get a lot of people writing to me at the moment, telling me about their personal circumstances, and it's really, really tough, and we understand that. And, you know, I read those letters and hear those stories um, with a very heavy heart. But a warning from the Governor that clear minds must rule over hearts, however heavy they may be. We also talk about, if we don't get on top of this, the pain will be worse. Philip Lowe clearly feeling the heat as the face of the RBA. It's not just me. I find sometimes the, the fact that it's all sheeted down to me is, uh, is a bit unfair but <laughs> because it's the board. There are nine of us. The questions from senators potentially picking up on public sentiment. From Green Senator Nick McKim. You seem prepared to smash Australia into a recession. Um, can I assure you that's not our intention. We are trying to navigate a narrow path here. Uh, We want to get inflation down because it's dangerous. It's corrosive, it hurts people, it damages income inequality, and if it stays high, it leads to higher interest rates. And from the Shadow Finance Minister, Jane Hume, questions as to whether he's a fan of the government's approach to handling the budget and managing the economy, and whether its decisions, or lack of action, is making the job for the RBA all the more difficult. Do you feel, Governor, that it's unfair... Final question. That it is unfair that, A... The blame for high interest rates and high inflation has been sheeted back to you and that, B, the 
Reserve Bank has been left to do all the heavy lifting. I'm not complaining about it. That's, that's our job. I've got to contain inflation and I've got to um, convince the community that we're serious about that. Philip Lowe describing how the RBA can influence the economy. Interest rates are a nimble policy tool. They're a blunt policy tool, but they're nimble. Arguing it's more effective, at least in the short term, than waiting for governments to make policy decisions on structural reform or cutting spending. Most of the time, if we're talking about trying to reduce aggregate demand by 1%, it's a pretty surgical thing that has to be done and getting that through the parliament and making decisions, that's, that's tough for any government. It's easier for me to do unpopular things than it is for maybe some of you, I don't know. The markets are anticipating three more rate rises are to come. Indeed, the RBA is foreshadowing more pain is on the way and Philip Lowe wants to stay in the top job throughout, his term not due to expire until September. Green Senator Nick McKim spelling it out to the Finance Minister, Katie Gallagher. Does Dr Lowe have the full confidence of the government? Yes. I'm accountable through this process. Um, I'm accountable through the media commentary, which you might have observed is non-stop and around the clock. So... Uh, <laughs> for Philip Lowe's fans and indeed critics, today was just the matinee. Um, I'll be here for another three hours in this building on Friday answering questions for members of the House of Representatives. So Leaving with a pitch to the public. That's what we do. We're here to help people keep their savings safe, low inflation, get them jobs. Even if some are yet to be convinced. That's political reporter Matthew Doran there at Parliament House. Well, as Philip Lowe was being grilled over the RBA's nine interest rate hikes, one of the big four banks that's been passing those hikes on to borrowers revealed a record profit. Commonwealth Bank has announced a half-year profit of more than $5 billion, with shareholders set to get a tidy dividend. It's prompted an angry response from borrowers and savers and questions about whether the banks need to do more to help all of their customers, not just their shareholders. Stephanie Smale reports. When asked about his take on booming bank profits while many Australians are facing going bust, Philip Lowe says he understands people are hurting. But he told Senate Estimate strong banks are a good thing. The banks um, are profitable, it's true. It's a positive for the country. We want strong, resilient banks. I know it's hard for people to accept when they're suffering uh, problems with their personal finances, but the country is better off from having strong, resilient, effective banks who can provide the financial services that we need. All right, you know, thank tough, you. It's tough, I know. The profits just keep getting bigger, with Australia's biggest lender, Commonwealth Bank, announcing a record half-year profit of more than $5 billion, up 10%. One of the key ways it made money was a growing gap between its costs for borrowing money and what it's charging customers to borrow from them. Brisbane locals have slammed the latest in a long line of bank profit spikes. I think it's appalling and it's just a sign of the appalling greed that we're seeing these days. It's unacceptable. It doesn't feel right and it doesn't feel right that those people will all be getting massive bonuses. You know, and I'm in my job and I'm having to do extra hours just to pay for that. What is a bank but an essential service in the Australian economy, providing a service that people are very dependent on and it is a very controlled market with only four major players. Helen Bird is a senior lecturer in corporate governance and corporations law at Swinburne University of Technology. She explains there aren't any laws stating banks have to do the best they can for all of their customers, not just their shareholders. But she argues banks have a social obligation to do just that 
as was the case during the pandemic. In all fairness to the banks, they were the backstop of the economy and they did provide extra social assistance that made sure that many customers didn't go to the wall in, in the difficult circumstances of COVID. But that, while commending them for that, doesn't negate the need to continue to do that. And the concern we have in this high interest rate environment is that what they're doing is looking after those customers that best serve their balance sheet. They increase the amount of interest that's paid by mortgage holders, but they don't give money or increase the interest rate they themselves pay for money given by deposit holders. Is there any way to hold them to account? Well, I guess at the moment there are really two ways we can look at them. One is short term and the other is a longer term. The first one is essentially a public campaign where we call and pressure them to do so. And I think that is actually happening at the moment, although it could get some more emphasis. And I think those all do have an effect and we should encourage more of it. But in the longer term, what we need is essentially to ask the question, should we actually impose more of a legal requirement to do this in the form of social licence in our Corporations Act. Now, that's a very big debate that many people would argue uh, isn't something we can do very quickly. But I note for the record that at least in uh, the United Kingdom, they've already done this. It's up to the company as to what particular interests they take account of, but the law allows it to happen. The Federal Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, has asked the competition watchdog to investigate the interest rates that banks are offering to savers. Dr Chalmers says the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission will explore whether the banks are behaving fairly when it comes to passing on interest rate increases. Stephanie Smale reporting with Rachel Mealy. Well, the federal government's flagship climate policy is under threat, with the Greens demanding a ban on new coal and gas projects before it supports the bill, which is aimed at pressing our biggest polluters to reduce their emissions. The impasse is reminiscent of the Greens' decision to block Kevin Rudd's carbon pollution reduction scheme in 2009, but energy experts say a ban on new coal and gas now isn't feasible and it may not guarantee a reduction in emissions either. Bridget Fitzgerald reports. The Greens will support Labor's bill to cut industrial emissions as long as the government bans new coal and gas projects. We want the government to stop making the problem worse. Greens leader Adam Bant. You can't put a fire out while you're pouring petrol on it. The International Energy Agency, the world scientists, the UN have all said we're in a time of climate crisis. We can't open new coal and gas mines. The government's safeguard mechanism legislation will require 215 of Australia's biggest polluters to reduce emissions or face penalties. It's Labor's key policy to cut greenhouse emissions. The opposition won't support it, which means the government must rely on the Greens to get it through. But Climate Change Minister Chris Bowen has indicated Labor won't agree to ban new coal and gas projects to gain that support. Ultimately, I'm speaking on behalf of the government, we will not agree to anything not in keeping with our election mandate. The safeguard mechanism legislation was passed by the Abbott government in 2015. It put a cap on emissions for industrial facilities, but the caps were so high they've been ineffective, according to Alison Reeve, the Deputy Program Director of Energy and Climate Change at the Grattan Institute. What the reforms are proposed to do is to bring those caps down and then keep bringing them down over time so that over time industrial facilities have to reduce their emissions or if they can't reduce them for some reason, they need to buy an offset from somewhere to make up for that. 
The industrial sector accounts for 30% of all Australian emissions. If the reforms don't pass, what we will see is that there will continue to be no constraint on industrial emissions in Australia. Alison Reeve says a ban on new coal and gas projects wouldn't necessarily accelerate emissions reduction. Because Australia has an emissions budget now that's legislated, there's only a certain amount of CO2 that can go into the atmosphere between now and 2030. And so any new coal and gas projects have, will take up a share of that budget rather than adding to our actual emissions budget. A ban on new coal and gas projects will not change the emissions budget, but what it will change is who is allowed to emit within the economy because if those projects don't go ahead, other facilities will be allowed to keep emitting or emit more. And it'll still be some time before a majority of our energy comes from renewable sources. Another 60% of our electricity supply needs to come from the wind and sun, depending on how you do these numbers of the order of about 40,000 megawatts. Bruce Mountain is the director of the Victoria Energy Policy Centre. We'll need coal and gas during this transition period. We simply can't switch quickly. Uh, and the details of the coal and gas supply become terribly complex in each case, Um, but we will have no option but to continue to use it while it's phased out, and that might mean new supplies uh, for some of our generators in order to continue to operate them for a period. The coalition has already confirmed it'll vote against the legislation, but during question time today, Treasurer Jim Chalmers made a broad appeal to his colleagues across the aisle. It's incumbent on every member of this parliament to set aside self-interest and act in the national interest and pass the safeguards legislation. If those appeals continue to fall flat, however, the Albanese government will need the Greens' support to keep its signature emissions reduction policy alive. Bridget Fitzgerald reporting there. This is PM, I'm David Lipson. Ahead, toxic chemical concerns weeks on from a train derailment in Ohio. We'll hear why experts are not convinced by EPA monitoring. They kind of give people a false sense of security. I would not rely on those results uh, if it were my family in the area. The second issue is I think a lot of the monitoring was done upwind of the accident. Australian children may soon have a better chance of surviving a cancer diagnosis thanks to the nationwide expansion of a genomic testing program. It involves a sophisticated analysis of the genetic alterations that can drive the growth of cancer in order to help deliver specialised treatments for each patient. Isabel Masali reports. A few years ago, Marie Codgell's toddler had a rare brain tumour that wasn't responding to chemotherapy but a new approach gave her hope that Christian may survive. And it worked. And that's why we're here today too, to share Christian's story and to give other families hope that even if it is a very poor prognosis, which is what we had, that there is a chance. And we're very, very lucky that um, just everyone that's involved in it, um, their commitment and their dedication to this work. It is life-changing and it's changed our lives too. The program run by the Children's Cancer Institute and the Sydney Children's Hospital provides targeted treatments to children with the highest risk cancers. To do that, a sophisticated genomic analysis is performed on each patient and soon every Australian child with cancer will have access to that same approach. 
The Institute's Executive Director, Michelle Haber, explains. Each child participating in the expanded zero trial will be able to have their cancer analysed from the time of diagnosis, as well as at other stages throughout their cancer journey. This will help track the way a child's cancer changes in response to treatment. Analysing the cancers of up to 1,000 young Australians each year in this way will add significantly to our understanding of childhood cancer. For example, identifying the specific genetic changes driving these cancers will allow us to develop new targeted therapies precisely matched to these genetic changes. Therapies that will be less toxic and more effective than those used today. Later this year, all nine of Australia's children's hospitals will be participating as part of a $67 million expansion funded by the federal government and philanthropic organisation the Mindaroo Foundation. Researchers describe the program as a breakthrough. To understand the significance of this milestone, we need to get a sense of how far we've come. Back in the 1950s, a diagnosis of cancer in a child was tantamount to a death sentence. Very little was known about childhood cancer and the vast majority of children died. Since then, great progress has been made and the survival rate is now over 80%. Yet today, cancer continues to claim the lives of more children in Australia than any other disease. Associate Professor Elizabeth Williams has been keenly watching this space. She's a cancer treatment researcher at the Queensland University of Technology. I'm really excited about where this program has got to. It's really proven that in those high-risk children that there's a significant impact. I mean, more than two-thirds of the children, almost three-quarters, were able to get a personalised treatment plan based on that genomic testing of the cancers. And the turnaround time for doing that testing has been quite feasible so that you can start a treatment in time. I think this is marvellous. It's terrific to think that all children could have access to this sort of program. When it comes to adults, she says Australians are turning overseas and spending thousands of dollars for such a targeted approach. Local trials could change that. So we're definitely testing that and in some situations we're already doing that. So a good example of that is breast cancer where if people have a particular genetic aberration, there's a very specific treatment that matches that. Across the board, though, it's not as common. And we're finding that when you take a more widespread group of adults, the success rate reported to date with matching people with a personalised treatment plan is not as high as what we're seeing in the childhood cancers. But with more trials underway, she's optimistic this could be used by all Australians in the future. That's Isabel Musali reporting. There are concerns over the risk of escalating violence in West Papua after independence fighters released footage of a New Zealand pilot taken hostage there. Experts are worried the incident could prompt the Indonesian government to crack down on the independence movement. Alexandra Humphreys reports. New Zealand pilot Philip Merton stands alongside his captors. Some are holding rifles. One hoists the Morning Star flag, a symbol of the Papuan independence cause. Captain Mertens then addresses the camera. Indonesia needs to recognise Papua's independence. 
Captain Mertens was captured last week when his aircraft was stormed by independence fighters shortly after landing in the remote and mountainous West Papuan district of Nduga. The plane was set alight. Five local passengers were released. Camelia Webb-Gannon coordinates the West Papua project at the University of Wollongong. I think the New Zealand pilot happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. He travelled to a war zone within West Papua in Nduga Regency. West Papuans have been fighting for their independence from Indonesia since the 1960s. The abductors say they won't free their hostage until authorities acknowledge the area's independence. Despite the ordeal for Philip Mertens, Dr Webb-Gannon insists it's a primarily peaceful independence movement. In recent years, the guerrilla army or the liberation army has um, become increasingly you know, desperate in its attempt to garner international attention to the cause. The group has previously taken hostages in 1996. 11 people were kept for more than four months. In 2018, independence fighters killed construction workers in the area, prompting the Indonesian military to send in troops. And what I'm concerned about is that Indonesia might use this current hostage taking as a pretext to increase its military operations in the region. Coordinating Minister for Political Security and Legal Affairs Mohamed Mahfoud says the Indonesian government is focusing on negotiations to secure Philip Merton's release. Taking civilians hostage for any reason is unacceptable. Therefore, persuasive efforts are the main guideline for the safety of hostages. But the government does not rule out other efforts. Ronnie Kareni is a Canberra-based West Papuan activist. He isn't condemning the hostage takers. The tactic that has been used, it's not violent. They have taken uh, the pilot. Um, the manner in which they've taken, they have not exerted any form of violence. Yes, the plane was set on fire, but they've released their statements twice now, as we've seen. Um, that they're willing to come to a negotiating table. He says New Zealand and Australia's handling of the situation will be key. But in terms of um, his capture, is more as a pawn for uh, political negotiation. That's West Papuan activist Ronnie Kareni speaking with Alexandra Humphreys. Nearly two weeks after a freight train carrying toxic chemicals derailed in the American state of Ohio, leaching them into the air, soil and water, there are nagging concerns about the health and environmental impacts of the disaster. State officials have confirmed that chemicals spilled into the waterways have led to the death of over 3,000 fish, and locals are reporting respiratory issues, skin reactions and the death of pets. In a moment, we'll hear from an environmental health expert at Johns Hopkins University who's raised questions about the air contamination. But first, Nell Whitehead explains what happened. The 150-car train derailed in the Ohio town of East Palestine, close to Pittsburgh, almost two weeks ago. Five of the tankers that overturned were carrying liquid vinyl chloride, which is toxic and highly flammable. A huge fire ignited and amid fears of an explosion, officials ordered an evacuation. Here's Ohio's governor, Mike DeWine. It could potentially explode, causing deadly disbursement of shrapnel and toxic fumes. 
With about 2,000 people evacuated, crews then set off a controlled burn, sending a giant black cloud over the town. State officials warned that byproducts of that burn included hydrogen chloride and phosgene, a toxic gas used as a weapon in the First World War. Everyone in Pennsylvania and Ohio who's in this area, you need to leave. We're ordering you to leave. This is a matter of life and death. Ohio's Department of Natural Resources has confirmed that chemicals which spilled into local waterways killed around 3,500 fish. But they now say it's safe for people to return after air and water monitoring didn't find any contaminant levels above screening limits. Here's the director of Ohio's Health Department, Dr. Bruce Vanderhoff. By the time we were at the decision point for potentially bringing the people who had evacuated back into the impacted area, we had on hand air testing that told us that the air looked pretty much like it did before this event ever happened. Locals have been advised to drink bottled water, but many are unconvinced by the assurances. NBC spoke to this East Palestine resident, Ben Ratner. How do you feel about being home? Do you feel safe? Mixed emotions. I feel like there's not an immediate risk, but I definitely feel like there's a long-term risk uh, as far as things that are seeping into the ground. Some residents are reporting skin reactions, respiratory issues and nausea, and they say chickens and dogs are falling ill and dying. Amanda Brashears spoke to local news channel WKBN News. I'm beyond upset and quite panicked. My video camera footage shows my chickens were perfectly fine before they started this burn. And as soon as they started the burn, my chickens slowed down and they died. If it can do this to chickens in one night, imagine what it's going to do to us in 20 years. Norfolk Southern, which operated the train, said it's provided more than $1.2 million in reimbursements and cash advances to families to help cover evacuation costs. Neil Whitehead there. Now, for more, I spoke with Pete DiCarlo. He's an Associate Professor of Environmental Health and Engineering at Johns Hopkins University and started by asking what chemicals are of most concern. Initially, the reports were that it was vinyl chloride. Uh, Since the initial reports, other chemicals have been identified as being part of that, that train as well, including butyl acrylate, ethyl hexyl acrylate, ethylene glycol, monobutyl ether. These are chemicals that are used in in producing plastics and other products. Of the ones that were released, vinyl chloride is is a known carcinogen. It will, as a carcinogen, um, increase the risk of developing cancer later in life. Um, Also in high concentrations can cause respiratory impacts uh, and it's a pretty pretty nasty chemical to breathe and it's something you definitely want to avoid. And were there any reports of residents nearby with breathing difficulties or any other health concerns? I'm not familiar with the results immediately following the accident. I think a lot of people got out of there very, very quickly. I have heard reports of residents coming back into the area and having some symptoms such as nausea and vomiting and, and headaches and are, and are actually, you know, understandably scared about returning to the area uh, after the accident. So what are authorities doing to alleviate those concerns? And in your opinion, is it enough? The government came in and they made measurements um, and they took some air samples, which, which are the appropriate thing to do. Unfortunately, the equipment used and the method the methodology of, of taking those air samples was something that, that I 
I have a little bit of an issue with as someone who does air measurements and, and tries to understand chemicals in the air as, as what I do for research. Fundamentally, they're using handheld monitors that are not designed to make measurements of outdoor air. They're, they're designed to be used in an industrial indoor facility and, and assess risk for people who are working in that type of environment. They fail in terms of they're not able to monitor at the appropriate levels or for the appropriate chemical specificity. Um, in a situation like this. And so they kind of give people a false sense of security. Um, and, and I would not rely on those results uh, if it were my family in the area. The second issue is I think a lot of the monitoring was done upwind of the accident. So, you know, anyone who's been around a campfire and the wind is blowing, you stand on one side of the fire, you don't smell the smoke. You stand on the other side of the fire and the smoke's in your face. They're measuring on the side of the fire that the smoke is blowing away from. It's not in your face. And so when you make measurements there, you're not actually seeing the true picture of, of what's being released from the accident site, or in this case, in this analogy, the fire. Right. So with carcinogens like this, if things are worse than the authorities believe, how long does it take to show up? These are typically things that are going to take a while to show up. Um, and and I'm, I'm an air I'm an air person. I, that's what I. That's what I study. That's what what I monitor. Um, some of the other concerns are what's getting into the soil, what's getting into the water, and those are other ways to be exposed to some of these chemicals. And that's not something that I have a lot of expertise in, but I think it's a valid concern for the people who are living in this area. You know, we can't go back in time and measure what was in the air at the time of the accident immediately following the accident. Water and soil have a little bit of a longer memory, but as soon as the air blows away in the wind, um, we lose that opportunity. And so um, I think there are still opportunities to measure what's in the water and what's in the soil, and people are doing that right now. Um, but we've lost our ability to, to measure kind of what was in the air at the time. And so we don't truly know what exposures happened. That's Associate Professor Pete DiCarlo from Johns Hopkins University. And that's the program for today. Thanks for joining us on PM. I'm David Lipson. You can, as always, catch the program live or later on the ABC Listen app. We'll be back at the same time tomorrow. Until then, have a great night. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. The head of the Reserve Bank has fronted a Senate inquiry saying raising interest rates is the best way to fight inflation. Today, business and economics reporter Gareth Hutchins on why there could actually be an ingenious alternative. Look for the ABC News Daily podcast on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.